Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for joining us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today. It's just uh, another lazy Sunday here in the Roe household. How are you, Sarah? Good. Yeah, it's a blue sky out there, but a dark, stormy night indoors. Because we're watching horror movies. Oh, because we're watching horror movies. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if that was like a, a deeper metaphor. We have some business to take care of here at the top of the show. We've got a new patron to thank. Oh. To become a patron of Scream Scene, one must only go to patreon.com slash podcast and sign up. One cannot simply just go to patreon.com slash podcast to sign up. In fact, it is exactly that simple. <laughs> yeah. For just a dollar a month, you too can become a patron of the night like Benito Serino. Thanks, Benito. Friend of the show, Benito Serino. Thanks so much, Benito. Means a lot. Hey, uh, Benito has a podcast too, hey? That's right. Uh, Benito is the co-host of the Apocrypals podcast with Chris Sims. Yeah. Check that out if you are interested in hearing... Two non-believers go through the Bible book by book every episode and try not to be jerks about it. Yeah, the way you said non-believers and knowing that both Chris Sims and Benito Serino do comic book stuff, I thought you were going to make some kind of Marvel joke. Oh, instead Stanley's of true like, believers? True believers, yeah. Excelsior. Right. What are we watching today, Ben? Well, Sarah, today we are back in the United Kingdom. It's 1939. And we are watching The Face at the Window, our second Todd Slaughter, George King movie. So we already have seen Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street from Todd Slaughter and George King. Uh, And this is the second movie we're seeing from them. And just like Sweeney Todd, The Face at the Window is adapted from a Victorian stage play. Sarah, can you tell us anything about... The Face at the Window, the play. For sure. So it is from 1897 and was written by F. Brooke Warren. Beyond that, it's very hard to find a whole lot of information about the play. And you can't find anything about the playwright online. So what I was able to find, I, I found a few different things, kind of put them all together into this little summary. Okay, interesting. <laughs> um, like I said, the play was first produced in, in 1897, and it's about a kind of master detective, kind of in the same vein as Sherlock Holmes. Okay. It's set in Paris, where a serial killer known as Lelou, which is the wolf, mm-hmm. stalks the streets. Before killing his intended victims, he howls like a wolf, hence the name. Tracking these murders is master detective Paul Gouffe. Sorry, um, what? Paul Gouffe? Okay. Okay. No, I did hear you right, Ben. It's just his name sounds like Paul Goofy. And <laughs> so I wanted to double check there. Yeah, it, it's spelt G-O-U-F-F-E-T. Okay. And kind of the iconic scene that survives the play is when electrical currents are used on the wolf's latest victim to get the victim's muscles to write out the killer's identity. (laughs) 
This process is known as galvanism. I mean, putting electricity into muscles to get them to move is galvanism. Yeah, that's what I meant. (laughs) They don't usually write the names of their killers. (laughs) That's not usually a part of galvanism. Oh, it it looks like it wrote out stroke. (laughs) God, the need for autopsies would be so reduced. (laughs) By all accounts, this was a very popular play, but there's, like I said, no information about it or about the playwright. Weird. If you, listener, are a huge face at the window fan, write in and tell us what you know about this play. (laughs) What I did manage to find was a review of the 1903 Lyceum Theater production. Oh, the Lyceum Theater. Yeah. Our old friend uh, Bram Stoker was like, what, the, the general manager? Something like that. The author of this review described the play as, quote, worthy of the inventive genius of Du Maurier, or the wild imagination of Edgar Allan Poe. High praise. Mm-hmm. And he describes how uh, the killer wears a mask and stalks and stares at his future victim through windows. Hence the name. Okay. The face at the window. Right. From this review, I have kind of um, a bit more details about the synopsis of the play. Lalu, the wolf, is um, the character Chevalier Delgado. And the climax comes with Detective Gouffet laying a trap for Delgado, but he escapes. Delgado and Gouffet are both kind of injured in that climactic scene. Um, And as Gouffet heads home, uh, Delgado follows him and murders him. Oh. And Gouffet, you know, he's injured and he's like, oh, if only I could write out the name. And he dies before he completely finishes it. Mm -hmm. A friend of Gouffet's, Dr. LeBlanc... Dr. The White (laughs) uh, uses galvanism to get Gouffet's corpse to finish writing out the name. And um, I don't really know why, but Delgado's in the room as this is happening and is revealed. And Delgado goes to stop the corpse from fully finishing the name. And with touching the corpse, he gets electrocuted. (laughs) And that's how he is defeated. (laughs) In this review, the play is described as a thriller and a melodrama. You know, there's praise to the comedic relief characters, and uh, it is a, quote, sensational drama with weird and thrilling fancies. Okay. Yeah. Now, a little bit about galvanism. It had really swept into pop culture thanks to Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. Right, yeah, because that was the whole, like, impetus. Yeah. I mean, her first version of the novel was published in 1818, but in her 1831 preface, she specifically brings up galvanism as an inspiration and just kind of takes it to a couple further steps. Mm -hmm. Around 1818, though, there were also public experiments being done by Luigi Galvani and later Andrew Urey. Yeah, I mean, the process is named after Galvani, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm just... It's really Andrew Urey that kind of does the public experiments. Okay. Yeah, and like Ben mentioned before, galvanism refers to the the muscle contraction or control with electrical currents. And I also thought I'd just briefly mention werewolves, given the idea that the serial killer howls like a wolf before murdering his victims. Um, If you want more werewolfery in your life, you can go to episode 50, where we talked about Werewolf of London. I think the reason the killer howls like a wolf 
is really more of like a hook. A gimmick. It's his gimmick. It's his gimmick, exactly. All, all um, criminals had gimmicks back then. <laughs> there were some recent publications about werewolves and folkloric origins of werewolves right when this play was first uh, produced. Um, kind of the key one being 1865's Book of Werewolves by Sabine Beringold, uh, which covered his folkloric studies around werewolves. So I, I think, like, it's kind of a gimmick, a spooky gimmick that, like, had ties to real fears at the time. Sure. But it's definitely not a case of a werewolf. It's not anything like that. It's kind of more of like, oh, werewolves are hot right now. We'll make our guy have a gimmick like that. Yeah, in the same way that, like, Batman isn't a Batman. You mean a man-bat. Right. Exactly. He's no <laughs> werebat. So the horror ban in the UK is something that we've brought up in the last couple episodes. The BBFC put a ban on the import of horror movies from other countries. Technically, horror films produced in the UK were never banned, but producers stopped making them in that time period. So you would think that the horror ban in the UK would put a damper on the efforts of Todd Slaughter and George King, given that this was like their whole deal. However, they actually continued to make movies all throughout the three-year period of 36 to 39. As a user on Tumblr, H-B-U-R-T-W-D-S. You gotta say it. Hubertwards. There you go. Um, brought up to us, Sweeney Todd had not in fact been rated H for horror. So the BBFC maybe didn't see Slaughter's films as being horror movies per se, but rather just as being these melodrama thrillers. And basically that's what Slaughter and King continued to produce was these melodramas, these thrillers with this old-fashioned Victorian style. Hmm. And if they erred more on the side of melodrama uh, and old-fashionedness, they could kind of skirt by. In the intervening three years, Slaughter had appeared in six films, of which three were directed by George King. Those three were The Crimes of Stephen Hawke, which was described as a new old melodrama. New old. Yeah, that came out in 1936. Then there was The Ticket of Leave Man, a thriller based on an 1863 play that was made in 1937. And finally, Sexton Blake and the Hooded Terror, a 1938 crime film and part of the Sexton Blake Detective series. And in that particular film, Todd Slaughter played a Moriarty-esque role in this very Sherlock Holmes ripoff series. In 1939, with the release of Son of Frankenstein making a lot of money in the United States, Universal and other American studios put some pressure on the BBFC, and the ban on the import of horror films was lifted in 1939. With the lift on the horror ban, Slaughter and King were free to return to their original style with the face at the window. Slaughter's brand of old-timey thrills was well known at this point, uh, so unlike his previous movies, this film was able to secure a distribution deal with British Lion Films, a fairly major British film studio. Uh, hmm. The earlier movies, if you recall from our Sweeney Todd episode, were independently produced and distributed by George King. Mm-hmm. Uh, by this time, Slaughter had developed a stable of actors who he reused over and over again in these movies, again replicating stage conventions on film. So The Face at the Window, the play, uh, as you mentioned, was very popular. It had been adapted eight 
times to film before this. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, between 1910 to 1932. Of those adaptations, four of them are lost films. One is a short, and the other three are considered to be drama, not horror. And of those three feature film adaptations before this, one of which was in 1932, they all have slightly, like, different character names in the yeah. cast lists. Yeah. Um, the character names kind of shift around. The premise of the play keeps kind of shifting around. They're all described slightly differently. Um, but there isn't a lot of information on any of them in depth. So we haven't looked at any of those previous adaptations because this is really like the big adaptation of Face of the Window and this is the one that's considered a horror film and like this is kind of the most famous adaptation similar to when we looked at Sweeney Todd and the Todd Slaughter version was sort of considered the definitive version at least until Stephen Sondheim came along. Mm -hmm. In our Sweeney Todd episode you mentioned how the quota quickies but especially Todd Slaughter quota quickies kind of preserved or memorialized the long-lost or possibly would-be long-lost stage plays or adaptations of different things, um, whether it would be played in, like, a traditional theater or in, like, beer halls or whatever, that kind of traditional content. Yeah, a lot of early conventions of the British stage, um, traditional sort of performances or shows or plays got preserved in the form of quota quickie films, and they probably would just be forgotten today if not for them. And I think this is a prime example yeah. of that, given that, like, like I had to use some really powerful search engine savviness <laughs> to find that 1903 Lyceum Theater production review. Okay. And that was the only thing that I could find about the play itself. So I think, yeah, this is a prime example of without Todd Slaughter... This play and these film adaptations probably would have just, like, been lost to time. Mm-hmm. So this version of The Face at the Window is adapted to film by A.R. Rawlinson, who is something of an interesting character. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a bit about him. He was born in London in 1894 and educated at Cambridge. He fought in World War I, rising to the rank of lieutenant by 1916, before he was wounded and taken off active duty. He then transferred to military intelligence, rising to the rank of major in MI1, which was the division of military intelligence responsible for code breaking and secret communications. 007 is in MI6? Yes. Cool. In peacetime, he became a screenwriter. The Face at the Window was his 23rd film, uh, but he might be best known as the writer of the original 1934 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring Peter Lorre in his first English-speaking role. That's pretty cool. When Britain entered the Second World War in September of 1939, Rawlinson reactivated his commission as a major, serving in MI9, which was responsible for assisting European resistance cells against fascist rule. Uh, eventually, he rose to become director of MI19, which directed the interrogation of prisoners of war for the acquisition of valuable intelligence information. He ended the war a lieutenant colonel, as well as an OBE, which is um, a member of the Order of the British Empire. He then returned to screenwriting <laughs> after that, and passed away in 1984 at the age of 89. 
So just kind of a neat dude. Yeah. So by September 1939, England is involved in World War II. Yes. When does this movie come out? So The Face of the Window was released in April of 1939. Okay. So we are still in the pre-war period, barely. Critics uh, at the time called this film, quote, rich in the spirit of the thrillers of years ago, unquote. That's a polite way of saying that it's old. It's hokey. It's, yeah. So how are we watching this hokey old film? Well, The Face at the Window, much like Sweeney Todd, is in the public domain. There's a version on YouTube that you can watch. I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) It's in 240p. Like, the video resolution is very, very low, and it's nigh unwatchable, in my opinion. Um, You can also find it on the Internet Archive in a slightly higher resolution. Like, that might be 360p, maybe. And because it's a public domain film, it's also been released on DVD by numerous cheap DVD companies. Uh, You can find it sometimes as like a double feature with some other Todd Slaughter movie on DVD. (laughs) There's Todd Slaughter box sets that have all of his movies in them uh, for pretty cheap. So yeah, it's, it's widely available, even if a lot of the iterations of it out there aren't exactly in the best shape. Will we be watching the Internet Archive? One then? Yeah, we're watching the Internet Archive version, just because the YouTube version is really painful. Okay. Well, if you want to experience pain, go to our YouTube playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. We're going to watch the film. You'll hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Face at the Window from 1939. Directed by, not Todd Slaughter. George King. George King. See you on the other side, everybody. back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Face at the Window from 1939. Sarah, uh, what did you think of this movie? I mean, I'm not yawning like you are. I was having a hard time staying awake. That's because you were lying down and underneath a blanket. (laughs) I mean, it's not a horror movie. No. But it is kind of like a melodramatic adventure. Adventure's the wrong word. No, I see what you're saying, though. It's like an adventure thriller. It's yeah. It's a it's a movie serial compressed into sixty five minutes. Yeah. How long are serials usually? Like ten minutes. Well, like an episode's usually ten minutes long, and then there's usually like fifteen to twenty episodes. So it's a six episode serial all put together into one. I mean, there's a hero, there's a villain, there's twists and turns, there's narrow escapes, there's cliffhangers, there's, there's duels, there's plot contrivances. Yep. Do you want to let the audience know what these plot contrivances are? Sure. So it opens with a murder. (laughs) Most foul. And (laughs) the amount of times that this movie says, it was the face at the window. (laughs) And 
as usual, I turn to Ben every single time to say, That's the name of the movie! <laughs> Our main character is Lucian. He is a bank clerk at the Debrisson Bank, owned by Debrisson. Debrisson has a daughter, and Luci- Lucien is dating that daughter, Cecile, in secret. Mm-hmm. Lucien is the only person at the bank at the time of the murder that happens. Um, there's also a bank robbery at the same time. So he's one of these suspects. Now, we also meet Todd Slaughter's Delgado, who is set up to be very, very rich, and it's only Delgado's money investment that can save the bank after this robbery. And he'll invest in your bank, but only if he can get Debrisson's approval to start courting Cecile. Delgado learns that Cecile is very much with Lucien and is not interested, so he tries to frame Lucien as the wolf instead to try to get him out of the way. In his scheming to do this, Debrisson figures out that Delgado is the wolf and has tried to set Lucien up. So Debrisson gets murdered. And by happenstance, Lucien is implicated in that murder as well. (laughs) Bad luck. Yeah. By this point, Lucien and Cecile suspect Delgado to be the wolf. They definitely know he's a bad dude. So they try to prove he's the wolf, as well as clear Lucien's name, by using Dr. LeBlanc's experiment. Dr. LeBlanc is set up earlier as a genius-slash-mad scientist who is experimenting with galvanism, and for some reason the police agree to this experiment. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding, right? On the night of the experiment, Delgado shows up early and murders the doctor. He doesn't quite do a good enough job, though, because A, the doctor sees that it's Delgado, and B, is alive long enough to start writing out the murderer's name. This is important because, as was set up earlier in the film, galvanism allows the muscles to complete whatever action they were doing before (laughs) the thing died. So, ergo, we can use electricity to have the hand finish writing out the name. Lucien steps in to finish the experiment when everyone arrives, and, using all of this electricity, has the hand finish writing out Chevalier Delgado, who is in the room and freaks out and confesses to the police, pulls a gun, is laughing maniacally, and he escapes out the window just as Lucien's friend pops up as the corpse because it was all a ruse. No corpses were actually injured in the making of this film. So the police and Lucien and Cecile chase Delgado back to his house, where we see that the house has secret passages and a torture basement and a hideous guy in a cage, who Delgado calls his half-brother or his foster brother or something. And it's this foster brother we see locked up in a cage that we recognize as the face in the window. He's kind of a monster. Think if Lou Ferrigno was playing Paul Wegner's The Golem? Mm-hmm. That's what he kind of looks like. And the whole idea is that this guy would show up as the face in the window, would distract the intended victim, so then Delgado could come up behind and stab the person, or throw the knife and stab the person. Yeah. The howl, the wolf howl, was also a ruse to kind of distract people or whatever, or cover his tracks in some kind of way. He justifies all this by saying that, you know, I promised our mother that no one would ever see you, so I solved that 
by killing everyone who sees you. And if they happen to, you know, die in a way that allows me to rob a bank or whatever, so much the better. Mm -hmm. But now that people are coming into the house to arrest me, they'll discover you, so I just have to kill you now and throw you in this cage into the river that's conveniently right outside this basement trap door. And so he's telling his brother this, and his brother, who doesn't seem to speak or anything, uh, just as everyone breaks in, the brother, you know, strangles Delgado up against the cage, and they both fall into the river, and it's clear that they have both met their demise, and the day is saved. Yeah. The it's, end. It's a lot, Sarah. So, in the beginning, in the context setting, you said that this was considered one of the most... One of the adaptations that was closest to horror. Like, this one's actually called horror. What makes this a horror movie? I don't know. Yeah, I don't I, know either. The only thing for me is that watching the film... So we've only seen the one other Todd Slaughter film, Sweeney Todd. Yeah. From three years earlier. And this is, I would argue, superior in filmmaking technique from Sweeney Todd. Yeah, they got better. Um, it sort of shows how Slaughter and King had grown as professionals over the past three years. And in terms of the visuals, it at least succeeds at looking more like horror than Sweeney Todd does. There's use of shadow and camera angles and set design to give it that dark, gothic look that Sweeney Todd just kind of didn't have at all. Sweeney Todd was very bland and, and generic looking. It's an all-around more competent production than Sweeney Todd, in my opinion. It has way less of an amateur hour feel, and I wonder if just the fact that you've got the character of Delgado's half-brother, who's got this monster makeup face, and you combine that with, like, the weird basement where he's locked up in the cage, and uh, the murders, and the darker cinematography just sort of gives it enough boxes to check off in that horror category that, like, people just are like, yeah, this is horror, I guess. In the same way that we used to talk about how all German movies of a certain, like, era got called horror, like, if they were expressionist in style, but not all expressionist movies actually were horror. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think the fact that it, you know, opens with a murder, it has spooky moments when there's a murder about to occur, there's the climax at the mad scientist's lab with mm -hmm. electrical sparks going off, the idea of raising a corpse yeah. to write something, even though that's all a ruse. But the use of these horror tropes, I'll say, feel shoehorned in during moments where it's like, hey, it's going to be spooky now. I didn't really feel like it was a horror movie outside of those moments. Well, like, exactly. It's, it's an adventure movie. I mean, maybe not in the traditional definition, but it has that feel. It, it's much more thriller. You know, it's, if this was made today, it would be an action movie. And the inclusion of these horror touchstones, you know, Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman has Dracula and vampires and Frankenstein and um, like werewolves and crap. And it takes place in Transylvania. It's not a horror movie. It's an action movie. Yeah. And that's kind of what's going on here. There's some horror trappings, decorations on this movie, but it's basically a, you know, straight up hero versus villain melodrama. I feel like they, in the same way that the villain was using, you know, the face in the window or the wolf howl or whatever to kind of make the murders seem more supernatural mm -hmm. or scary 
or nefarious than what they actually were. I feel like this film was trying to do the same thing with horror tropes because it opens with this, like, like a preface mm-hmm. uh, saying, like, you know, there's a wolf man in this or whatever. And it's like, there's no wolf man. Yeah. What are you talking about? But they use these horror trappings to give it that flavor without having to dilute their own interest in that Victorian-esque vibe they prefer to go for. And we've talked a lot about Todd Slaughter's interest in that, especially when he was in his theater days during the Sweeney Todd episode. You know, it's, it's hard without having a familiarity with the Face at the Window play, but it's significant to remember that he's adapting plays and content from a time period when, as we said in a lot of our early episodes, the horror genre as we think of it did not exist. Mm-hmm. It's something that really comes into, in literature, comes into being in the 1890s and sort of progresses into, you know, it's on stage by the 1910s and it's not really in film until the 1920s and 30s and even still we're sort of in this weird period for the genre as a whole. Yeah, I think um, there was something you said during the Sweeney Todd episode where if the Victorian era people had film technology, Todd Slaughter makes films that they would have made. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if the Victorians could have made movies, they'd look like Todd Slaughter movies. Yeah, and I think that is definitely exemplified here because I was trying to think, like, why... What is it about this movie that has, like, that feels similar to something? And I was reminded of the very first full-length film we watched for the show, The Student of Prague. Okay, where it starts out as just, you know, they call it a romantic drama. Mm-hmm. It turns into horror by the end. Right. And, like, it takes its time to kind of get there. And that worked for being, like, what is that, 1913? Yeah. I felt like this was doing a similar type of thing where, like, you know, where melodrama, the dad needs this investor's money, but the investor wants his daughter too, and the daughter should be dutiful to you know, support the dad's financial business, whatever. But she's in love with, like, some poor kid who the dad will never approve of. It's the same plot as Sweeney Todd. Yeah. So it, it, because it sets itself up like that, it feels very melodrama, despite opening with a murder, and then it gets, you know, I don't think this actually goes into horror, by especially by 1939 standards, but because they're sprinkling in those horror tropes here and there, it felt like how this first student of Prague kind of sprinkles that stuff in. Yeah, I mean, there are scenes in this movie that out of context could be like scenes in a horror movie, Mm -hmm. but the overall feeling of the movie is, you know, we've got the dashing hero, Lucien Courtier, and he's after the dastardly villain, the Chevalier Delgado, and like, I mean, Todd Slaughter, I actually like Todd Slaughter better in this than in Sweeney Todd. Like, he's still a maniacal mustache-twirling villain. It helps that he has a mustache in this one. Yeah, totally. Like, having the evil person goatee really helps bring the whole look together, you know? Yeah. It's one of those movies where you are not supposed to be taking it too seriously. And you can tell that because, you know, the whole movie's based around 
who's the wolf? Is it Lucian or is it the Chevalier? And Lucian's this guy who's like, oh, on my honor, I would never do such a thing. And the Chevalier's like, yes, <laughs> who could possibly be the, the wolf? <laughs> Allow me to flirl my cape evilly. Like, my machinations lay undetected for years. <laughs> Lysander off. And everyone's like, oh, it couldn't possibly be him. He's rich. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the funny things looking back at these old movies is the introduction of what we would now call serial killers in their plots. Yeah, that's fair, yeah. Like, Sweeney Todd and the wolf are both sort of serial killers in a very literal sense of the word. Of killing in a serial manner. Right. And these characters are both from these Victorian-era stories, uh, and of course, very famously in the 1880s, you have Jack the Ripper. In London. What I find sort of interesting about the depiction of the characters in these Todd Slaughter movies is they're ascribed these perfectly rational motives like lust and money and you know you can see like oh yeah he killed that dude because he needed to manipulate this situation to get this girl or whatever. The kind of motivations that you get in murder mysteries, right? Yeah. Where it's like, ah, aha, we know it was this person because the motive makes sense for these convoluted reasons. Yeah. Um, we can rationalize this. We can rationalize it, exactly. What's sort of funny is the rationalized murders are the ones that take place within the scope of the movie's plot. Like, in both the case of Sweeney Todd and The Face at the Window, the implication is that this person has been murdering a lot of people up to now, and those people would presumably have nothing to do with the plot of the movie. But the murders we see within the movie story are murders that we can account for with rational motives. The films don't want to examine the kind of true, terrifying randomness of a Jack the Ripper-style killer within their plots. Because that's just a little bit too much to wrap your head around. It took a very long time, I think, for our culture and our society to really start to understand how random violence could be. You know, you look at a lot of very early um, detective stories and murder mysteries, and people will get weirded out when there's a dead body and no money's missing, right? Because it it's just assumed, like, oh, this must have been a robbery gone wrong. You don't just kill someone for no reason, or whatever. Yeah. And it took a long time for us to really get around that as a culture. And in the case of these movies, you know, very clearly, these Todd Slaughter movies are just meant for fun. You know, they're not even really meant to scare you. They're, they, they're, they barely... They're just meant to thrill you. Yeah, and barely thrill you, right? Yeah. They're raising your heartbeat just a little bit. It's just some fun, harmless thrills on, like, a Saturday afternoon. And that's all these movies are. Given that this is just, you know, some thrills for an afternoon type of film, I don't think this is horror, and I don't think it deserves to be on the list. Yeah, this movie is should not be ranked. This is not horror, and we should do our due diligence of dispelling any notion that it is horror. How do you feel about Sweeney Todd looking back on it now? Yeah, so this is the thing. Um, we had uh, this appeal sent in that I kind of alluded to in the first half by H-B-U-R-G-T-W-D-S, the Bergtwoods, <laughs> um, sent in an appeal to us 
suggesting that we delist Sweeney Todd as not being truly horror. Uh, their point of information that we didn't have at the time was that Sweeney Todd had been rated A, not H. And at the time, our response back to Hubergtwids was um, that we, you know, we had our rationale in the episode for why we counted Sweeney Todd, even though there was some back and forth in the episode. Uh, but we were going to look at Face in the Window and, based on that, kind of see how we felt. Uh, so now we've seen Face at the Window, and the thing is, I do not think Face at the Window is horror, and I also kind of think that it's more horror than Sweeney Todd was. Yeah. Like, this is more of a horror movie than Sweeney Todd was, and this is still not a horror movie. Ergo, Sweeney Todd is not a horror movie either. What does the A stand for? Adult. Adult? It's like the equivalent of... Um, like PG-14? Just the equivalent of PG. So I, I feel like Sweeney Todd should still be on the list, because I think it showed how the horror genre was morphing and mutating in the UK, um, especially with the quota quickies coming out and being established as a, a thing. So I think it deserves to stay on the list as evidence of, here's how the genre's morphing over here. That being said, I don't think that this counts, that the face at the window counts, as we've kind of described, um, especially because we just saw Son of Frankenstein over in the States bringing back the renaissance of horror film, and here's Slaughter being like, ah, oh, yes, the renaissance in UK will be not horror. Yeah, I mean... He had his chance and he missed it. I get what you're saying. This, this is just how I feel. I think we need to dispel the notion that what Todd Slaughter was making was horror films. I feel like he gets associated with horror a lot. I see him called, you know, Britain's master of horror or whatever by the advertising on the covers of cheap DVDs of his movies. <laughs> um, looking back at it, I don't think Sweeney Todd even represents how horror was mutating in Britain because it's not coming out of the British horror traditions that we were beginning to see, like the ghoul or the man who changed his mind, hmm. Sweeney Todd is coming out from this older tradition of Victorian melodrama with these thrills, these kind of Grand Guignol thrills in them, and it's not so much evolving out of horror in the 30s as it is ignoring it. You know, Slaughter's coming in and pretending like the entire development of the horror genre in the 20th century has not happened and just hearkening back directly to this progenitor that predates really the genre existing. And I think that it's the kind of case where, and we, we kind of talked about this in the Sweeney Todd episode itself, that if these really had been movies made by Victorians, we might've said, Oh, these are horror. But in the context of the 30s, they aren't. And we've talked about that with some other movies where we've said they're not applicable. Where it was like, oh yeah, you know, if this had been made 10 years earlier, maybe it would be horror. But it's not by this point. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if we're not listing The Face at the Window, I think, for me, Sweeney Todd should be delisted as well. And our stance should be, you know, Todd Slaughter was making Victorian melodramas. And to categorize them as horror is misrepresenting what Todd Slaughter was doing. Because I don't think he was trying to be a horror guy in the way that, um, you know, Gamot British was off making these horror movies with Karloff. I think Todd Slaughter was trying to be 
the preserver of the Victorian melodrama tradition. He's making new, old melodramas. And I think, you know, obviously they'll still be up on the website with totally. uh, in the non-applicable section along with Hexen and the other films that have ended up down there. But that's where I kind of, that's how I'm feeling about it. I would agree. Yeah. You can kind of see that with this film here, how Slaughter is focused on Victorian stuff over horror stuff. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I think you've convinced me. Okay, so we are not ranking The Face at the Window, and we're also going to be pulling Sweeney Todd off of the list, so that is our first appeal, technically, from Haberg Twards, successfully appealing us to delist Sweeney Todd, and they're going to both go in the non-applicable section of our website. If you would like to see this list, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find the link to listen to the Sweeney Todd episode if you like, or you can listen to any of the other episodes. On our website is also where you can find the appeals box, um, where you can submit appeals, or you can submit questions, concerns, comments, anything of that sort. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can really help the show out if you leave a review or a rating on any of those services or your podcatcher of choice. It helps algorithms show the show to more people, is my understanding. Another way you can help us out is by heading to patreon.com slash Podcast and becoming a patron of the night. You can throw some financial support our way for as little as a dollar a month, and patrons at the $5 and $10 level get rewards like bonus audio cut from past episodes, monthly horror short fiction, and if we hit our first Patreon goal, we're going to start doing monthly bonus episodes about horror-adjacent movies like, I don't know, The Face in the Window. (laughs) I was going to say maybe like Sweeney Todd, the... Tim Burton movie. Maybe we won't actually do that one, but it's a good example of what I mean when I say horror adjacent. Is it? Because I would call that horror. I mean, it depends on how much you think, like, five minute long love songs in the middle of a horror movie, you know, makes it horror or not. Oh, I would say it's still horror, dude. Okay, well, you know. Anyways. (laughs) The work of Tim Burton, I think, as an oeuvre, is very horror adjacent. Yeah, You know totally. what I'm saying? For okay, sure. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. cool. Finally, if uh, you can't financially support us at this time, that's totally cool. We get it. Uh, but a great way to help out the show is just by letting a friend know about us. Uh, word of mouth is a fantastic way for us to find new listeners. So if you know anyone who would enjoy a show like this, let them know about us. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, I hope you liked... The Man Who Changed His Mind. I did. Okay, good. Because we are watching a movie where Boris Karloff plays a mad scientist who feels wronged by society and engages on some revenge involving brain stuff. It's The Man They Could Not Hang from Columbia Pictures. Wouldn't that just be Bella Lugosi from Son of Frankenstein? True. Good point. Yes, but this is different. Okay. Okay. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.